to the Engage Equip podcast. This is a resource designed to help form substantive disciples for the local church. My name is John Sikotowski. I'm the communications coordinator here at High Point Church, and I'm joined by the the esteemed Nick Gibson. Hi, Nick. Hey. Uh, so what we're going to be doing right now in this podcast is before our summer break, where we didn't release anything in the month of July, we had spent a couple months talking about the origins of human life in scripture and in science. And the, the series that we had was called Ancestors and Origins. So this is the last episode of the series. Our goal today is to sort of wrap things up by sort of summarizing what we've talked about so far and then reflecting on some of the main ideas and what's important for us to think about um, related to the topic of ancestors and origins. So ready to jump in? Mm-hmm. All right. So um, so yeah, so basically the goal of the series was to, was to talk about ancestors and origins, was to talk about um, the ways that the Bible and that science should inform our views of ourselves and our views of how how things started. So, Nick, do you want to talk a little bit about what the different views were amongst our guests and like what about them is helpful or what about them we should be thinking about? Yeah. Oh, man. Let me see if I can I, I summarize. I know. That's a, that, yeah, that's a big I'm thinking question. Of, yeah. I'm thinking of mainly three guests, um, right? We had... Um, yeah, three. We had we had uh, Dr. Joshua Swamidas, mm-hmm. who talked about the genealogical Adam and Eve. We had Dr. Nathaniel Jeanson, mm-hmm. who his book was Replacing Darwin: The New Origin of Species, and then Chris Walker, who was talking about the the title of his podcast is Evolution and the Majesty of God. Yeah, and Chris Walker. Let's we should stipulate is also Dr. Chris Walker. I yes. think he has a PhD in genetics as well. Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, so Dr. Swamidas's view is sort of a merging of an evolutionary timeline with a literalistic, not literalistic, a literal timeline for young Earth creationism relative to human beings. So he'd believe that the Earth is very old, the universe is very old in the billions of years, and then life evolved when it evolved to the point of human humanoids bipedal primates that were approximately human beings. God created out of nothing human mm. a human Adam and Eve that then were driven from the garden after their sin and ended up intermarrying and interbreeding with the essentially the bipedal primate humanoids that had risen to human status essentially. <clears throat> and so over time, Adam and Eve became the mother and father of all the living and that all that are alive now or at the writing of Genesis mm-hmm. could trace their lineage back to Adam and Eve. Yeah. Adam and Eve yeah. are, were, are not their only, the only humans or the, or the apex um, ancestor, like their furthest back ancestor. Yeah. Um, but they're there. And so the strength of that view is that it makes sense of what seems to be presumed in the early chapters of Genesis, that there are more human beings than the ones mentioned in the creation narratives. Yeah. So Cain has someone to marry, Abel has someone to marry and so on. Um, and it seems like they're tribes and peoples pretty fast. Um, yeah. the, the negative thing is that it, um, it utilizes evolution as it, the mechanism for the creation of human populations, as opposed to created human beings as the yeah. origins of human populations. Okay. And I remember, I remember one of the things that you talked about too, and that was like how, so the idea is with this that it it almost takes like what we would how how people stereotypically think of Adam and Eve as like they're at the top and there's kind of a, a triangle like if if you're viewing this as a family tree like there's the triangle of humans coming down and like diverging from those two as opposed mm-hmm. to Dr. Swamidas's view was okay if you if you build a family tree for yourself, you look up and you see, okay, each of your two parents each had two parents. So that splits off. And it's like almost like an inverted triangle. So like a V that eventually up there somewhere is Adam and Eve. And so right. they are within your ancestral ancestral history. Right. But that, uh, that a weakness of that view is, okay, would one does like, what does that mean for the person who was a hundred years separated from Adam and Eve? Like, are they, who is a human, like, are they in that tree or not? Because like, they wouldn't have been genealogically yet. And, right. um, 
would that have been like the understanding of those verses from somebody who's trying to understand them in a thousand BC? Right. Right. Yeah. So the, the, the way Dr. Swaminas makes the distinction in his language is he says, there's a difference between being the genetic ancestor of someone and being the genealogical ancestor of someone, right? Mm -hmm. If you're the genetic ancestor, then they got all their genetics from you. If you're the genealogical ancestor, you're somewhere in their family line, but their genetic makeup may be made up more or less of what your genetic makeup is. Does that make sense? And so what he said is we now as modern humans who think in scientific terms, we assume that Adam and Eve being our first parents means that they are our genetic first parents. And he said, but like Mm -hmm. in the Bible, they, what they give you are genealogies. Right. And so they were thinking in genealogical terms. So someone else believes that one of the, one of the strengths of his view is that it takes the biblical language actually more quote seriously or more literally that like when the Bible says genealogy, it means genealogy, not genetics because they didn't have a concept of genetics at that time. I think that's true. The question is, is that a distinction that is that an anachronistic distinction, right? Is, Is that a distinction we make that he's reading back into a time that wouldn't have distinguished between the two? Right. Mm-hmm. If you don't have a view of genetics, then your view of genealogy is your view of genetics. And so yeah. to be a genealogical ancestor is also to be a genetic ancestor. So the question as to whether or not Swaminathan's distinction is a distinction that would have made any sense to Old Testament people is, I think, highly questionable. I think yeah. the other issue relative to the exegesis of the text, what does the text actually mean? In Genesis 3.20, when Adam and Eve are leaving the garden, it says Adam or the man named his wife Eve, which means living because she would become the mother of all the living. Mm-hmm. Now, I find it highly not credible to claim that that sentence means that it doesn't mean Eve would be the first parent of all the living. She would mm-hmm. just ultimately, after a thousand or two thousand or three thousand years, everyone would be able to trace themselves back to her eventually. Yeah. And so she would be the mother of all the living. I just, mm-hmm. I can't make any sense of the idea that that's what the Genesis 3.20 means. That seems to me a completely foreign interpretation of what that verse seems to be claiming, which is that Eve would be the mother of all the living. Yeah. Right. So I am actually more, I would be happier with simply interpreting this passage, like Genesis 1 through 3 or 1 through 10, totally mythologically. That like God was telling us a story that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. And these are mythological figures where Adam means, means man and what, and Eve means living and, you know, human and living made baby. Like I would much rather just interpret it that way and say, God wanted us yeah. to recognize that this was mythology. It's true mythology and that the myth that it's telling is a hundred percent true. And that we're supposed to realize that the kind of literature this is, is mythology. And we're supposed to interpret that way. Therefore, it is not literal history, right? And at the time of Abraham, there's a clear distinction that now we're reading history. There's some Christians that look at it that way. And honestly, even though Swaminathan's view allows us to read the early chapters more literally, I actually think it fails to do that. Like, I, I am not persuaded by it. Yeah. Because I think that you end up having to really contort some verses to fit his view. And so, mm-hmm. I, Frank, even though I believe in the total inspiration of all of the Bible, I think it makes more sense to think that the kind of literature early Genesis is, is mythology, then I, then I can make sense of Swaminathan's argument as being a faithful interpretation of the text that exist. Yeah. So even though I think his view is very creative and interesting, and even if false, it leads some people to faith, I'd be glad to see that. I yeah. do not, <laughs> I, I really just don't think it's correct. And yeah. I think, I just, yeah. I struggle with, I struggle with it. So, um, I think it's very interesting. I think I appreciate what he's trying to do mm-hmm. and all of that, but I just, I just don't find it persuasive. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Okay. Go to so the, yeah. So the second, or then yeah, Chris Walker or Dr. Chris Walker Dr. was Chris one Walker. of them. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. And, and with, with, with what he did in that podcast was basically give us more of a history of genetics and what people found out when and how and why mm-hmm. I know because I went on a fishing trip with Dr. Chris Walker to catch trout. Well, you were on that trip too. Yeah, I was on the trip. Um, yep. Yeah, we went to the White River and caught trout. We talked a good yeah, bit one about. Yeah, we his... tried to get we tried to get my boat motor working and just discovered that it was filled with a mouse nest. So, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. that was fun. Um, yeah, 
uh, anyway, so um, so what 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 Chris's view is, if I understand it correctly, is um, I think that he believes the Earth is old. I think that he believes that life changes over time. And but I think that he believes that there's a really strong what you could call teleological principle in the change of life. So. Um, what Darwin believed essentially, so basically Chris's argument is Darwin didn't understand genetics, which is indisputably a fact. I mean, there just mm-hmm. wasn't a view of genetics. I mean, Darwin didn't claim to know genetics. And so what Darwin believed was that there was some kind of low information process that was producing more complex forms of life through natural mm-hmm. selection and mutation, right? What genetics has told us is that inside the human genome is an extraordinarily, incredibly complex information rich environment that we have no idea where it came from and the evolution does not appear at this time to be an incredibly great way to describe how this complexity came about right it's more information than that's in the encyclopedia britannica right in every single cell and so that has created a significant problem now what what chris argues is that that's actually really interesting because what it means is, is that god could create a number of different kinds of creatures and if they had DNA inside of them, which of course they did, then DNA could have a principle inside it that varies considerably so that it would look like evolution and in fact would be a kind of evolution where mm-hmm. animals could change their body types due to genetic alterations and what 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 we might find out in epigenetics, right? The, the idea that like our genes actually have the ability to rewrite themselves is the yeah. idea in epigenetics. So we don't, but we don't know how it does that. We don't know how much it can do it. We don't know if mm-hmm. that can change phenotypes, like the shapes of our bodies or anything like that. So we're still finding out about how epigenetics actually works. We don't really even know. Right. So what right. Chris believes is that um, there may be ways in which our our genetics can self-alter or code or change relative to environments and changes so that creatures can change much faster than the evolutionary timeline might say so. And so mm-hmm. therefore, um, what would just, what would, describe or explain the differences in animals and stuff like that is evolution that they are changing over time through genetic change or or recoding and so on but that um but that it is not chris see chris believes that there is kind of like a brick wall at kind which i think he places somewhere around what we would call a genus or a family in the Mm -hmm. taxonomic tree of of like um, how close different kinds of animals are to each other. Yeah. So like, yeah, like dog, I remember, dogs are dogs, cats are cats, right. whales are right. whales. I, I remember several times during the podcast him him saying cat kind. Yeah. That, that that term just stuck with me. Yeah. Maybe so, the cat so, kind. Yeah. So he believes that God created. I believe that his view is is that God created in kinds, and from there, uh, human biodiversity has evolved into all kinds of different variations that yeah. are really interesting and in environment specific. I believe relative to that, that he believes that human beings were created as a special act of God mm-hmm. and that didn't evolve from preceding bipedal primates or monkeys, yeah. if that makes sense. So so Chris's view is, is that God has actually made biology able to change in ways that evolu- previous versions of evolution have not entirely explained, but that are mm-hmm. obvious now from genetics and that view our view of evolution will have to change but that some view of evolution can be retained that we don't actually have to reject every view of evolution but just the all explaining god denying version that came out of early forms of darwinism should be rejected so does that that make sense Mm -hmm. so in that sense chris's view is sort of like a yes and no to evolution yeah yes within kinds no to explaining everything and no relative to human beings yeah does that make sense but yep. what that means is that if you're 16 years old and you believe what Chris believes and you're at school and somebody says, do you believe in evolution? You could answer yes or no to that question. Because mm-hmm. you do believe right. in a certain amount of speciation, like change within kinds, that is a form of evolution, but that you don't believe evolution like answers the question of how life got here by itself. Right. 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 So the, the third view, Dr. Jensen, I think is... Yep. Yeah, Dr. Nathaniel Jensen. Yeah, so Dr. Nathaniel Jensen... Uh, works for answers in genesis which is a young earth creationist foundation his view is a young earth creationist one which is the belief that the earth is between six and ten or twelve thousand years old it's quite young and so that all of the time scales are much shorter than we otherwise would have thought so now that doesn't necessarily rule out change um i think dr nathaniel jensen actually said in a couple places in the interview that he believes that like there has been change 
in animals. Mm-hmm. Like you can actually see it in the fossil record. He just believes the time scales are much shorter and therefore there's something operating in genetics that makes that possible. That's more complicated or yeah, that's more complicated or not exactly the way it was all described in like the origin of species and in traditional evolutionary approaches. And yeah. so he wants to replace Darwin. There was another person. Um, I forget the first name, something Marshall who wrote a book called evolution 2.0, who essentially was making somewhat similar argument that like, we need a fundamentally different view of evolution. But but so Jensen's view is not just that evolution can't explain everything, but it's actually that the time scale doesn't exist, that the earth just mm. isn't that old. At yeah. least not in the as we see it today. Yeah. Um and so in that sense, uh if he's right, then all of the pretensions of certain versions of science that would stand against the biblical testimony would all be completely destroyed immediately the problem is is that's that view is very hard to show because you have to show that the earth is old geologically and all that kind of stuff and that's i think that's pretty difficult to do i've never been able to persuade myself that that's true or persuade others that it's true right and i think one of one of his arguments too was that the like if we look at evolution the kind of like if we look at evolution as the as the complete origin that like it, it went from amino acids to single celled organisms, to complex organisms, to what we have now, like the, that the reason we have the kind of time scales that we do in sort of secular evolution is less because is less because we're, we've like found some evidence that says we should have that kind of time scale and more that we're like, okay, in order to produce the kind of complexity now, if we have this theory, we need to make time scales this long in order for it to fit. And so, so some of his arguments were, or I think some of the thing, one of the things that yeah. I found helpful about his, what he was saying was like, what young earth creationists can start to do is to, is to start to do predictive science to start to be like, okay, if, if we're right, let's start to predict how we think things are going to change and let's start to test those things. Um, yeah. So, so young earth creationists doing scientific predictions was a big theme of that podcast. Um, and I think it is important. And I think that for young earth, cre- for young earth creationists to be taken seriously, that has to happen. And I think, yeah. I think Nathaniel Jeans is really interested in that. Um, however, I think that the argument that um, evolutionary timescales are post hoc that like, or ad hoc that they were like, because we needed a long time to make evolution work, people started talking about geology as, like being a long time scale. I think that's, I think that's wrong both historically and in terms of the scientific and philosophically mm-hmm. in terms of how people argue. I, my understanding is, is that theories of a longer age for the earth preceded Darwin. Mm-hmm. So that there was already a view that the earth might be very old before Darwin came up with this theory. I, and so I, and, and that gained popularity relatively quickly. So my understanding is that um, those two are not, connected in that way that like first we got evolution and then the geological timescale changed um secondly um yeah so i think that that's true both in terms of the history of science it also in true true of like the argumentation i think that a lot of geologists would would say they're very comfortable just saying on the basis of geology alone that the earth is very old much older than twelve thousand years um i mean i mean even in anthropology, there are cave paintings in France that are dated to 28,000 years old. Yeah. Right. And that's not, that's not based on a, on a, on a geologic or evolutionary timescale. That's based on an anthropological artistic artifact timescale, which could also be wrong, but I don't think it was created to dis to prove biological evolution because biological evolution is irrelevant to that, that statement of anthropology. So, um, yeah, so so my issue, so my issue, so I love I love how young Earth creationism reads in the Bible. I think mm-hmm. the Bible is very compatible with young Earth creationism, and I think just on the face of it, if you just read the text of Scripture and you're like, what, which of these views obviously just makes the most sense of this easily without contradictions or problems? I think it's young Earth creationism. There's no question in my mind about that. Yeah. The issue though is is that if all truth is God's truth, that we discover other truths outside the Bible that couldn't have been known at the era that, in which it was spoken. Do we just say, well, none of this can be true? Or do we say, God knew we would find this? And there, it, God has put into the Bible the capacity for us to go through and take what really is true 
mm-hmm. and what is we can tell is true from the scriptures and create a synthesis so that we can understand what early history was like. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so we received three pretty different views over the course of the series. Mm-hmm. So I guess what, and this is an issue that like ends up getting a lot of press, I think like in Christian circles and especially for those, I, I remember like when I was in college, it felt like important amongst me and my peers to like try and figure this question out. And I know like a buddy of mine was, was um, applying to be a pastor at several different churches and had s- several times got turned down because he didn't sort of dogmatically hold a young earth creationist view. So, so there is, there are like ways that this, this comes up as important in, in yeah. our Christian understanding. So I, I guess, yeah. how would you encourage us to like, to engage with the differences between these views and like what's important about having a view of origins? So I don't believe that synthesizing the biblical testimony with the scientific world is necessary for people to trust in Christ, believe in him and follow him and be his disciple. Um, There are frankly a lot of human beings that do not have the cognitive ability to even start to think about this. Like if you were born and you have an IQ of 85, like you already turned off this podcast. Like there's just no way, you know what I mean? And so for some of us, we will believe a lot, a lot of our beliefs about the earth are very general and they are mythological in their structure and they're good enough for us to work through life accurately. And I actually don't believe a view of the origin of the world is necessary for us to operate in the world and have faith in God. Now, yeah. the reason why this is important is because part of understanding yourself in, in, your, in the world and what your life means um, usually includes the answers to at least four questions that we sometimes call worldview questions or world life view questions, which is destiny, origin, meaning, and morality. So hmm. origin, where did I come from? Destiny, where am I going? Um, meaning, like, what is my life about? What am I here for? And morality, like, by what means should I give other people their due? What is justice or what is good, right? And yeah. without answers to those four questions, it's hard to place yourself in your life, know who you are, and then act out of it in a way that's authentic. And so the answering the question of origin is a very relevant and specific and important question in people's lives. And people who can think about the meaning of life in the world are going to think about it, right? And so... Christianity has an answer, and that answer on the face of it appears to be in contradiction to the answer secular science gives on the face of it, which leads to a certain kind of sense of contradiction, which can really bother people. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? So in that sense, in order to sustain your own faith, to not have your sense of origin being cut in two, and also to help other people have a belief in what their origin means— it, be, it can become really important circumstantially for those people who think this way and consider it and care about it or who need that answer, that that question answered so that they can really consider Christian faith. Right. So for yeah, some like people, I remember, it's not that important. For others, it's super important. Yeah. Yeah. Like I remember recently hearing about a, um, like a relatively, relatively popular cultural figure who, who was a Christian who like had this long podcast that he came out with about why he decided to not be a Christian. And it was primarily because he felt like deceived about evolution. And then as he was doing his own research about evolution, he decided, Oh, because I've been sort of deceived about this thing, like what other things have I been deceived about? Is my faith really real and ended up losing his faith because of it. So, so yeah, I think you're right that like it can, it can contextually end up meaning, meaning a lot. Yeah, and it, within just High Point Church, just our church, all of the relevant views on this are present. So there are some people who have told me, so most people know that the amount of younger people who grow up in the church who stay with the faith well without a long break, right, is not great. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the question is, well, why are these young people, a lot of them, not sticking with the church? And... um. And then a lot of people, some people believe that this has a, a, a relationship to the, this question of origins, right? To the extent to which it does have a, a relationship to origins, there are different answers from people as to what the problem is. So some people would say what you said, like, if we're not honest with our kids about the theory of evolution, they're going to encounter it. They're going to feel like they weren't prepared and that we had lied to them. 
and then they're going to turn away from the faith. There are mm-hmm. other people who have said, no, an evolutionary worldview is in and of itself substantially godless. And to the extent to which we teach our kids to believe in evolution, ultimately there's like, like there's a poison in that system that works yeah. its way through the whole worldview of the person who believes it. So actually giving our kids the ability to refute evolution is incredibly important to their faith. And for a lot mm-hmm. of those folks also defending that the earth is young. And mm-hmm. a, a good portion of that just is, is that they want to support a belief in b- biblical reliability, which I think is really noble, right? Like right. we want our kids to believe right. that they can believe the whole Bible. And if they can't believe the first two chapters of the Bible, then a Christianity is completely lost because you can't have Christianity without humans creating the image of God. And, and a, a number of things that are laid out in the first three chapters of Genesis, creation, yep. fall, promise, all that kind of stuff. But then also like if Genesis one, two, three, four, five or whatever are false, how do we determine what parts of the Bible are true or false? And the answer is, right. well, if the Bible doesn't, then we do. And if we do, then we stand above the text. Mm-hmm. Right. We believe in that by definition, we, we believe in enlightenment, enlightenment ideology rather than in historic Christian faith. So that's a real problem. So that, so we're like, well, then what's the solution? The answer is, right. I don't, there's not an obvious solution. I think yeah. that we can prove that we're, we, so I think we could be as intellectually honest as we can be. So kids won't think we're being intellectually dishonest. Mm-hmm. I think we, we could be careful not to bear false testimony against our neighbor. So saying that one view or another says something that it doesn't, whether that's yeah. being honest about the theory of evolution or frankly being honest about young earth creationists. I mean, I've, I've seen a lot of bigotry in the church and outside the church of people telling lies about young earth creationists mm-hmm. that they're all like this or that when they often aren't. Um, so I, so I would say that, and, and, and then I, generally speaking, I think for a lot of kids, it's going to be better if there are robust options for them. I think, um, yeah. the approach my brother took, he was also on the podcast with Swamidas is when he does this for his college students, he gives them 14 ways that you could understand how all this goes together. Mm-hmm. And on one level, you'd be like, Oh, that sounds just bewildering, which, yeah. Right. But you also have to realize he teaches at UC Davis and almost nobody there has an IQ of less than let's say, 115 at least probably more like 125 mm-hmm. so he, i mean he's taught i mean it's like the third hardest college to get into in california or something like that or at least in the state system it's very difficult to get in there so these are very mm-hmm. bright people so get so giving them non-dogmatic arguments is temperamentally helpful for them yeah right so it, a lot of it just depends on a lot of things frankly john and i don't know that there's a silver bullet where we just go oh here's the view that's it yeah and we're done yeah right I think that there are some views that I think probably don't work with the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and a lot of that does get back to the question of Adam and Eve. Who were they? Did we all come from them? And so on. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess, yeah. What would you like? I know, I know you said it. There's, there is no silver bullet, but like as the pastor of high point church, like, what would you, what would you recommend that people, people who are, who have an interest in the issue of origins mm-hmm. and have that interest for whatever reason, whether it's, whether it's because of their kids or whether it's because they feel they felt like they were burned by one view or the other in the past or whether, mm-hmm. or whether, right, they're just trying to figure out kind of their place in the world. Like, what would you recommend they do to deal with that question? Yeah. So uh, this may not be a very satisfying answer for some people, but the first (laughs) issue for me is the psychological one, like understanding why we get convinced of things and not convinced of things and whether or not those are good reasons. So there's a lot of people who believe in evolution because people who they respected and people who were in positions of intellectual authority told them to believe in it. Mm-hmm. And that's not really much difference in, in different in practice than people believing in spiritual or biblical narratives of origins because people in authority told them to believe in it. Um, yeah. Like there's a lot at stake when you live a public life in a place like Madison, where if you tell people you don't believe in evolution, they're just going to like, like there's a real cost for that. Like people just assume you're stupid and ignorant and so on. So I, th- I think we need to be really honest with ourselves about like why we believe stuff that we believe in adolescence, like younger people can be really bad on this. Like they mm-hmm. just, they will just believe things and they don't pay much attention. They don't really realize why they're believing things. And so I will, I like to start with the psychological question before I start with the factual question, right? Because 
you know, when you go, when young people go through the process of differentiation, they naturally um, sort of detach themselves somewhat from their parents and attach themselves more to their peers. And if the thing that really makes their parents different from their peers is their religious faith, then they're psychologically like predisposed to like pitch their parents' faith and follow yeah. their peers. And their peers often have never even thought about faith seriously. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah. So I think first of all, like try to realize like why you even believe what you believe and why you're even thinking what you're thinking. Right. Yeah. Then the second thing is, is that if scripture says the Bible is the word of God written, and if Jesus affirms the old Testament, which he does, then we have to go to the, to Genesis and like read it as it was intended to be read, but as the word of God written. So from the literalist perspective, like we believe it's the word of God written. However, from the interpretational perspective, like you're supposed to read a text the way it's asking you to read it. Right. So if I write somebody a love letter and I write another person, a legal contract. And if I go and talk to the person I wrote the legal contract to, and he starts talking, he starts interpreting it like you would a love letter rather than like a legal contract, which is what it is. I would be like, you're not reading that right. And if the, and if the person reading my love note got all literalist about everything I said and got really offended by some things when I was speaking lyrically and poetically, Mm -hmm. I'd be like, you're not reading that right, darling. Right. That's not, mm-hmm. that's a, it's a love note. Don't you see? Yeah. Um, and similarly when we, so any text is a certain kind of text, what, what the word is genre, right? A certain kind of literature. And so one of the big questions that people struggle with, with Genesis one and two and three is what kind of genre is, it? especially Genesis right. one, because Genesis one is kind of lyrical. It has this rep- repetitious kind of thing. It talks about days, but then it says the sun and moon are are created on the fourth day. Like there's things right. in it that seem to signal like it might not be just a literal narrative. Yet at the same time, chapters one, two, and three bear all the markers of literal narratives as well. Mm-hmm. And so, but the, see, this is and this is one of the biggest difficulties with ancient literature is to determine whether or not the author thought they were writing history or mythology. Yeah, that can be very difficult because the way you write mythology is very similar to way the way you would write a narrative. Right? Mythologies mm-hmm. are narratives, but they include things we're supposed to, we're supposed to know didn't happen. Right? But if you're a particularly superstitious person, you could easily read mythology. I mean, a lot of people did in the ancient world. There were a lot of Greek people right. who read the Greek mythologies and thought that they were just true, like literally true. Right. And right. people like Socrates would would have known that like no these are mythologies. But part of the reason he knew they were mythologies is because he didn't believe them. Right? So part of the issue with ancient mythologies is it's not even clear whether or not the original authors thought they were mythologies, even if they're clearly in that kind of genre, right? So when you go to Genesis 1, 2, and 3, you're like, oh, this is mythology. Well, how do you know that? <laughs> right? Now, on one level, you can say, well, because the man is named man and the woman is named life and there are these right. like, you know, these, right? But like, what would you call the first man other than man? Mm-hmm. And if the first woman was going to be the mother of all the living, why wouldn't you name her Eve or life? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so like th- that can be a fairly difficult thing to work your way through. But I do think right. that like, if you're a believer, you have to make sense of the early chapters of Genesis as the word of God written. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think generally speaking, when in doubt, we should functionally assume a slightly more literal approach and yet be open to, to accepting a more, um, a figurative, I guess, is probably the right word. Approach, yeah. if yeah. if that appears to be right, as we learn more about the natural world, if if that's what it takes to integrate the two. But I, th- I also think, thirdly, people need to be open to integrating their their knowledge. That mm-hmm. it's true that the Bible is the word of God written. It's also true that the Bible alludes to the fact and it explicitly states that God reveals Himself in the natural world, right? Mm-hmm. Psalm 19, for example, says that, you know, the heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament, the work of his hands. Like it explicitly yep. says that the natural world tells us things about God. Right. And so it, I think it's, I think it's right and necessary to know more than what the Bible tells us as human beings. And I think we're actually commanded to know more than the Bible tells us. I think that's what the creation mandate is all about. When we go out to subdue the earth, we're going to study it and learn about it. And we'll learn things that aren't revealed that way. And a number of Christians in the, age of reason said there are different kinds of knowledge. The kind of knowledge that we could derive through science, God explicitly and intentionally didn't tell us because mm-hmm. we could find it out. But a lot of, a lot of knowledge like moral knowledge and spiritual knowledge, you can't learn from science, right? Like you can't learn from science. I mean, sometimes people like clutch their pearls when I say this, but 
you can't learn from science some of the most basic moral principles, like that torturing a baby is wrong. You can't learn that from science. Science mm-hmm. can tell you that if you torture a baby, it will cry. Or you, science can tell you that if you torture babies regularly, when they grow up into adults, they don't adjust very well and they do violent things that don't lead to human flourishing. But they yeah. can't tell you even if a concept of right and wrong even exists objectively. And they right. certainly can't tell you whether or torturing a baby is wrong. Right now, Kant would have said you could know that through reason, but reason isn't science. Reason mm-hmm. is philosophy. It's a different thing, and you investigate it not through the scientific process, but through the reason process, process of reason or logic. So, like, so some of these earlier people in the age of reason, they just said, "Listen, a lot of things we learn that God tells us in the in the religion of Christianity, you could not know through science. We can only know them through special revelation. That is the Bible and Christ. And I think that there is some truth to that." I think the, the reason that the Bible doesn't include more explicit scientific information is because we're supposed to go find that out, and we can. Mm-hmm. And the reason why it includes the information that it does, that is historical narrative, explicit re- Christian religious teaching, moral teaching, spiritual teaching, teaching about our meaning and purpose and that sort of thing, is because we could not have, we could not have determined that through science and conscience mm-hmm. alone, especially after the fall. Yeah. That yeah. as people who are morally fallen, we won't produce moral perfection through reason alone. And so God yeah. gave a special revelation. So I think that the idea that like the Bible is not designed to be like when people say the Bible isn't a scientific textbook, I think that that's correct. But I think sometimes that means therefore there can't be any propositions in the Bible that have scientific implications or that will tell us some scientific claim is false or true. And I think that's wrong. I think, I mean, with the, if the Bible says Jesus rose from the dead, there is an implicit scientific claim there that factually the body of the man, Jesus Christ, isn't in the grave in which he was buried. And right. that is a scientific fact or falsehood. We might not mm-hmm. be able to verify it because we might not be able to find the right tomb and be able to know which body it is. And we might not be able to test for Jesus' DNA and all that kind of stuff. So it might be an unfalsifiable scientific claim, but it is a scientific claim. It is a claim of yeah. fact that could at least in theory be investigated and falsified or verified. And so there are things in the Bible that are in that sense scientific and we can use the Bible then to integrate that with our scientific knowledge. Does that make sense? Um, yeah. So, yeah. And, and this becomes very important when fields of science like the social sciences go radically astray. Like yeah. right now, I think that a good portion of the social sciences that are involved in things like social work have gone incredibly astray. And one of the ways that we can know that Christianly is when we read the underlying ideology and a lot of this research in quote science it is morally completely opposed to the Bible. Mm-hmm. And so then we get, okay, wait a second. There's all these, once we understand that the ideology of that, that scientific establishment is opposite and against the scriptures, then we can say, okay, wait, have these ideological presumptions that have been made that are not scientific by nature affected the research that's being done in these fields? And does yeah. it affect the way our, we are having a scientific outlook on things like raising children and disciplining children and, like mm-hmm. forming institutions and schools and how we blah, 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 do all that stuff, help the poor and so on. And I think that the answer is absolutely. So the Bible in that sense can help us critique science. When, yeah. when the word science there means an establishment of science, not the scientific mm-hmm. method. And the Bible is making claims about the underlying values that are guiding the presumptions through which bad science is being done in the name of science. Right. Does that right. Make sense? right. So in right. that sense, I think the Bible is incredibly relevant to science and how we do science and how we think about science. Mm-hmm. It also, I think, let me say this and then I'll let you do whatever you want here. Um, I also think that our culture worships a vague image of science as a strange idol. And we, and we also don't understand science. And you see this on yeah. Facebook all the time <laughs> where they're like, they're like, you know, you know, science, trust the science know, or twinkies. the, yeah. Right. Yeah, or, like, or like, Christine, my, my wife and I will go in a walk around our neighborhood and we just see over and over signs in the yards that say, you know, science in this house, we believe science is real. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. You believe in self-defeating. To, yeah. Those signs are so <laughs> like, even if you believe this stuff on those signs and you're a Christian, look, if you, if you can hear the sound of my voice and you have all those signs in your yard, go outside and pull it up and throw it in the garbage, the nearest garbage <laughs> you can, because it's not so much that some of the propositions on that sign aren't true. It's that they are, what you're doing is you're pretending other people don't have good arguments mm-hmm. by like saying some simplistic nonsense that's really just positioning yourself to beat other people. And mm-hmm. it's 
it's a very unkind and inhospitable thing to do. And to put that in your yard is basically to attack your neighbor. And also to bear, what you're doing is you're breaking, is it the, was it the seventh commandment? Don't bear false witness against your neighbor. Hmm. Like when you put that sign in your yard, you're saying your neighbor doesn't believe any of those things if they don't mm-hmm. believe your politics. And that's false because I hate that sign and the underlying truth in any of those statements, I believe. Yeah. But the, the false testimony it claims about some of my views that would contradict some of the politics behind that sign mm-hmm. are a total mischaracterization of what I would actually argue and most people like me. And so um, it's extremely bad behavior to have that kind of sign in your yard if you're a Christian. Yeah. Well, it is if you're this a human. Is... And if you're a Christian, you should right. be able to do that. Right, right. This is but a, a lot uh, of conservative this... Christians will not put the we welcome you here if you're an immigrant in like three languages sign. I think right. that's a perfectly fine sign. And and that is associated with progressive politics about immigration, but it's mm-hmm. it's also making a specific claim that is a hospitable claim aimed at the immigrant themselves. And even though it's also being snarky and mean to your neighbors, it's also intended to be read by immigrants and be welcoming to them. So you mm-hmm. could mean it positively. And in that sense I think it's something Christian. I just want to balance out the politics here, but I just, yeah, this gets back at the issue. Like one of the, one of the issues that progressivism struggles with right now is that, that like that it, it worships a false view of science. Hmm. It has a view of science that isn't very sophisticated. It it's wrong. It, it, what it does is it falls into the fallacy of equivocation. It uses the word science when science can mean at least three different things. It can mean things that we think are scientifically true, like Mm -hmm. gravity is true. The sun brings warmth, so on, right? Science as a method, the scientific method, how we create hypotheses and falsify them. And science as an establishment, the group of people who do science, the money they use for their research, and the Mm -hmm. establishment and authorities that they have related to that. So like Dr. Anthony Fauci would be like the figurehead of that right now. Mm -hmm. And so like when it suits people, they use whichever of those three definitions they want, but then they backload the other definitions in when they want to beat people over the head. So if right. I if if you say look I've had COVID I don't feel like I need to get the vaccine and they're like well you're against science and you're like well no I'm like what you're basically saying is I'm against the scientific establishment guy who has all the money who's telling me what to do mm-hmm. but I actually believe science definition one that my immunity from having COVID is basically the same as my immunity from getting a vaccine if not better right. Mm-hmm. That you believe in definition one and they're pushing definition three, but they don't accept that. They just go, you don't believe in any of the three definitions. You're a bad person. Right. But that's only because science definition three, the people who have the power told you that. Right. When definition one, it's arguable on the basis of definition right. two. And so people right. just like, they say all this <laughs> crap. But when most people say science, what they mean is what I Googled or what was said on the news source that I read. And so right. what they're really referring to is not science but the establishment of science that came to you through a voice of authority. Philosophically, what that is, is an appeal to authority. It's not Mm -hmm. an appeal to science, Mm -hmm. right? And so when we say science in that category, what we mean is an establishment of authority that tells us what to do, right? Well, a scientific establishment of authority might tell us true things if they really are doing science, which could be great. But I think it's incredibly naive for people to just assume that that's the case. And Mm -hmm. so for a lot of younger people, um, they get bullied into all kinds of ideological beliefs that are terrible because they believe that's what you have to believe if you believe in science. Science is essentially reduced to factual reason. Well, you don't want to be not reasonable and not factual, right? So you believe in science. What that means right. is definition three, you now have to accept every word that comes from that bastion of authority, which right. is usually filled with incredibly non and anti-Christian ideologies that seek to tear down every concept built into the gospel that God has revealed to humanity for its redemption. And so like what I would love to see as a pastor is whatever your view on origins is for Mm -hmm. you to escape the like ideological possession that comes from ridiculously nonsensical, simplistic understandings of science that have nothing to do with science and like everything to do with people abusing their power and bullying Mm -hmm. you and so on. And so, um, and I think that that could one make you better at science because you really are have a open investigative framework of like trying to learn, but the, it'll also help you distinguish between like when science is an, is connected to an ideology and when something mm-hmm. is just an investigation into like a true, uh, like a factual representation of the physical world. Does yeah. that make sense? 
Yeah. And I think it's important to recognize. So anyway, there, there's lots more history of science I would love to do. Right. Well, so let me drop one name here. One of the people I think who's doing some of the best work in Christian faith and science right now is a person named Stephen Meyer. Um, he was like he was part of the intelligent design movement. Um, and one of the reasons why I think that intelligent design movement probably has some really good insights is because it was the movement most viciously attacked by anti-religious, like scientific establishment types. Mm. And when people send the ravenous dogs after a particular Christian group, I tend to wonder if that group is onto something. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and having read a couple thousand pages of intelligent design literature and having read several hundred pages of anti-intelligent design literature, it's extremely evident to me that they were bearing false witness against the intelligent design people. Mm. And most of what they said about them was false. And so I have no trust for those folks because I literally read both sides and it was very clear that the intelligent design people were being profoundly misrepresented um, to anybody seeking to look at it as rationally as I felt like I could try to do. So I, and so Stephen Mayer has come back with a couple of books recently, his like sort of trilogy of larger books, um, Darwin's doubt, something about the cell. I mean, his most recent one, recent one is about genetics and how genetics Mm -hmm. affects our theories of origin and how maybe evolution's right, but it's, it needs a lot of help if it's right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know, from something. Yeah. And it may, there may be scientific principles we still discuss, we yet discover that shows that built into the fabric of biological life, it did have a lot of help, right? But right now, it looks like that lots of help that it got is through DNA or extremely informationally rich subroutine programs, which every, every way that we think about how you write programs or how we get information is based on intelligence. And mm-hmm. so if information is how we evolution works, which could be the case, that information is a result of an intelligence that isn't the evolution. And so mm-hmm. you have to posit an intelligence that creates the information and that intelligence is godlike because we can't yet ourselves create anything like DNA. Yeah. So there are some real problems and Stephen Meyer brings them out. And what I where I think it leaves the average person is I don't know what all the answers are. But clearly all this anti-religious scientific rhetoric is bunk. Mm-hmm. It's just it's just simplistic garbage where people, they're really just taking the nearest scientific weapon in hand and trying to beat religion with it. Yeah. And that's wrong. It's like it's it like they're there being a kind of like in my book, there is very little difference between the people holding signs at like military funerals saying God hates gays and people like Richard Dawkins who just grab any weapon to hand and just say and just try to beat religion over the head with it. Like they're both yeah. fundamentalists. They're like they're non-thinking fundamentalists. They're just trying to beat the other person. Mm-hmm. And I think that Christians need to free themselves of that. And if they do, then they might be able to think somewhat clearly about science. And they'll also realize that, like, yeah, I mean, our attitude towards science is just going to have to be like curious and interested. And yeah. we're going to learn. We're probably going to learn a lot in the next twenty years. Yeah. You know, if you you can come to a view right now, and it may not hold up in twenty years. Mm-hmm. That's one of the reasons right. why I think right. if you realize the natural world screams a creator no matter how old it is and and that um that's a reasonable position and it also screams that there has been a hand of design in it even though there may also be mechanisms of evolutionary development then it points to theism or the belief in god Mm -hmm. and then from there i think that you can then turn to the special revelation we have about god to learn about him and i think that that's going to be more fruitful than trying to make the Bible and the scientific narrative merge and fit together in every step when our scientific yeah. knowledge and probably in certain ways, our interpretational knowledge of the Bible are frankly still pretty primitive. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think something that I thought of too, when you said, um, when you were talking about at the beginning of point three of like, we need to, we need to integrate our different, like our different pieces of knowledge. I think it's helpful too to think, like, if you feel at if you're looking into origins and you had a particular, like, you had a particular view of origins, and you come to a different view that offends your original view. I think it's, I think it's helpful to think, to think to yourself, okay, is is this new view that I'm now viewing, like, is this is this offending? the Bible or is it just offending my original view? And so like to not lose your faith, if you come to a different understanding of origins, like, Mm -hmm. like, like your brother, like how you said, your brother could, could, 
could come up with 14 views of how the Bible and the current science could work to come up with a view of origins. Like, I think I have heard a lot of stories of, of especially young people getting to college, learning about evolution and then losing their faith because of, because of some view of origins. And I think, I think one, you do need to apply the interpretive framework that you're talking about. Like you need to, whatever you're receiving as a new view, you need to see, okay, is there some sort of profoundly anti-Christian ideology behind this? But if there isn't that, and if you're just, if you're as best you can trying to bring in new information um, to, to inform your view, consider whether or not your new view is, is it like, if it's offending you, is it actually destroying the, is it actually going against the word of God or is it just going against sort of a simplistic understanding that you used to have of origins and you don't need to not become a Christian because you have a different view of origins. Um, yeah. I mean, one of the ways psychologists talk about this is like our conceptualizations, right? So mm-hmm. like we partake in information and then like, we like turn those into concepts and then we structure those concepts in our minds and we are like, okay, I understand it. Yeah. And then what we th- often think is, is that that conceptualization, the picture in our mind by which we understand things, like corresponds exactly with the world as it actually is. Right. But <laughs> right. I mean, just think about that just in relationship to God. I mean, think about your conceptualization of God. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, look, it, it's not inherently idolatry to have a conceptualization of God. We all have to have one if we're going to believe in him. But to mm-hmm. what extent do you think your conceptualization of God is a one to one correlation with the God that actually exists? And the idea is like, <laughs> it's probably not that much like him. Like we're just trying to get a few <laughs> concepts about God. Right. And we're leaving out like yeah. millions of them. Right. So, we know that our conception of God is not going to be that accurate in certain ways, right? But it's mm-hmm. going to be maybe real accurate in some ways. And so, like, if you realize that there's a lot of space between your conceptualization of something and the real thing itself, then if yeah. you hit into something that forces you to change your conceptualization, you're going to be fine if you don't confuse your conceptualization with the thing itself. If, if your right. conceptualization of God gets destroyed and you think that your conceptualization of God is God, you just lost your faith. Right. But if right. you know that there's a difference between how you think about God and God, mm-hmm. then you can go, oh, maybe I need to th- change how I think about God. Yeah. And then you just do. But it doesn't, it may make your faith a lot stronger. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so some of it, some of these problems are psychological. They're not philosophical or scientific. And I find those ruin people more often than the actual scientific questions. Yeah. In my opinion. Yeah. You yeah. know? Um, but I do, that doesn't mean I think that this isn't important. I do think it's important, but I don't mm-hmm. know if and when we might be able to be in a place where we'll ha- be able to have a definitive answer mm-hmm. unless you don't take the scientific information into account and you just look at the Bible and you're like, this is what happened. Yeah. But I don't, I mean, if you go all the way back to St. Augustine and St. Augustine thought that Genesis one wasn't literal. He, he thought that God created everything in an instant in less than one day. And then mm-hmm. he told it as a work week and that the assumption is because there's a lot of people who've written about the fact that like, why is creation seven days? And the answer is because the co-creators, the human beings God made, were going to work for six days and rest on the seventh. Mm-hmm. And so the, the creational week and the work week parallel each other, right? We still have that today, the work week, right? right. And so that's the assumption in, in that work week of working six days and resting on one is treated all through the Bible, especially, well, especially the old Testament as fundamental to the plan of salvation right? And how human beings were supposed to worship and serve God. So like a young earth creationist would say, yeah, so that's why God spaced it out over seven days, right? It literally was seven days so that it would later parallel the work week. Mm -hmm. But other people have said like, it's told to us like a seven day thing so that it would parallel the work week. But that's a, that is a a device. It's like a literary device, right? Mm -hmm. And the young earth creationist says, no, it was a it was a behavioral device. God did it in seven days so that it would be parallel. Whereas others are like, no, the text says it that way as a literary parallel, but God did it in an instant or God did it 4 billion years ago or God did it, whatever. Yeah. 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 So, um, where would you recommend if people want to learn more about this, where would you recommend they go for next steps? I mean, you mentioned Stephen Meyer as a good resource. Yeah. Yeah, I, for, I think it's Discovery Institute that he's a part of in Seattle. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do think Answers in Genesis is a perfectly fine place to read stuff. I I don't, I haven't been able to convince myself to be a young earth creationist um, from the data. Um, so I, I, but I, but I do think that they do a good job of of um, 
of standing up for themselves. Because people yeah. say a lot of things about young earth creationists that really aren't true, and they don't really interact with their arguments very well. Mm-hmm. And so I, I do think that most of what you hear about young earth creationists isn't it. I think it, I think most of it is false testimony spoken against their neighbor, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and most people won't debate them now. They're trying to just shut them up rather than like mm-hmm. try to debate them, which I think is the wrong approach, especially inside the church. One of the yeah. reasons, sadly, that this is one of our last episode here is we try to get some of these people together to like discuss or debate or like, be interlocutors towards each other's views and it and we it didn't work they wouldn't do yeah. it um i'm not gonna throw the 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 person under the bus but like everybody said in private oh yeah i'd love to do it and then when it came down to it one of them was like no <laughs> so yeah. like that answer that was really sad for me because i was like yeah. oh this is great we can eat both people talk and then we'll get them together this will be great nope nope so um i think that's too bad you know, yeah. so we may have some, yeah. we may have a debate in the future or something like that. High point. I, what I want to keep is a environment of intellectual freedom. So mm-hmm. anyway, so I think reading Answers to Genesis that website I think is fine. Um, yeah. There, uh, the the pro evolutionary one is BioLogos, which mm-hmm. is like people who claim to be evangelicals in their view of scripture, but who believe in the evolutionary time frame, right? Mm-hmm. I don't agree with that. I think that there's, and I think that there's stuff on there that I would consider deceiving, including mm-hmm. some of the theological articles. I think some of the theologians like do stuff with scripture that I think is just not right. But if you want to mm-hmm. know that view, I think yeah. Biologos is probably the best site for that. There are, those people are at least trying to engage in the project of putting together the long-term evolutionary time scale with the Bible being the word of God written. And they yeah. think it can be done. I, I certainly don't think so based on reading stuff on their website. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's what they're trying to do. So, yeah. yeah. Um, but there there are a lot of books out there on this, and a lot of them aren't dogmatically like, you got to believe this thing or that thing. They're kind of like, look at all the space there is in real science mm-hmm. for religious faith. And in areas where science isn't going to make it better, in fact, if science was trying to disprove God, it's making it worse. Yeah. Like, there's there's a lot of stuff that's being discovered scientifically that, like, even recently in, in in the era of genetics that like makes the makes the atheistic version of evolutionary biology being sufficient to explain all things more and more and more problematic. I would say that the, mm-hmm. the theory of evolution has become more problematic over the last 15 years rather than better. But at the same time, there's been a lot of discoveries that can be used to argue for evolution too. So I don't want to say right. it's like been destroyed, but man, there right. are some things like the, like the problem of information is an enormous problem right now. That I have not heard anything close to a reasonably conclusive explanation for how that can be explained. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Uh, additionally, I mean, if you want to listen to the episodes that we had on this podcast um, with Dr. Joshua Swamidas um, and Dr. Nathaniel Jensen and Dr. Chris Walker, those are episodes 264 and then episode 266 through 269. Um yeah. Any any closing thoughts before we go? Um, I don't think so. No, I mean I've said a lot, so I I, I just yeah. I just hope just don't let this rock you. Yeah. Um. There's it, it's really complicated. Most people just don't have the capacity to analyze it well. Most of us have nothing like the scientific knowledge we have to know to like put a big stake down and be like this is my view. Yeah. Um, it's good to know enough science to see that there's a lot of beauty in it. And we don't want to be anti-scientific people. That's not right. good for the witness of Christ. And it's not good for our intellectual and spiritual development. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would just say, slow down, relax, don't get rattled, you know, and like just proceed in faith. God can, God can take us through the areas where our knowledge is imperfect. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Thanks. Thank you. Yep. have a podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, and other apps like that. 
We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.